Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Like intellectual bowerbirds, we aim to collect shiny little objects of knowledge that we think can help build better humans. Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis with my co-host, Ben Pronk. How are you, Tim? I'm very well. Really? Yeah, absolutely. I hope we can reflect on last year. We haven't done that yet. No, we will. But now's not the time because... We are going to speak to and reflect with one Kevin Toonan, ex-Sky God, former paratrooper with the 3rd Battalion of the Royal Australian Regiment, Mm -hmm. brackets, parachute, Mm close brackets, into being a physical training instructor including in the SAS regiment where um, he says he was immersed in learning. There was an amazing series of learning opportunities that forced forced him to grow as a strength and conditioning coach and in the way he thought about bettering people and human performance. Yeah, and I find it really interesting for him to reflect on that as a time of learning because from my perspective, having worked alongside him at that period, it was also a time where he was teaching us a lot. He was bringing new concepts in, and helping to change the paradigm in terms of how the unit trained uh, to what I think is a much more functional, much smarter, much more output orientated uh, form of physical training than it might have been in the past. Not surprisingly, we talk elite pathways, not just in the SAS regiment, but certainly how do people prepare well and not so well to undertake SAS selection. He tells a little story about you know one of our friends and a former guest on this podcast Monica Georgieva. Um, Mon's talked previously about the training she received from Kev at 54 kilograms. How does a female prepare for SA selection course to be the first to undertake the course as a female? And of course, elite pathways in professional sports. Yeah, since leaving the army, Kev's done some pretty amazing stuff in the civilian sphere, including his current role as strength and power coach for the NRL team, the Sydney Roosters but also as a, a bit of an entrepreneur and certainly a strength and conditioning expert with the 98th Street Gym, mm-hmm. um, where he talks about uh, going into an environment that I guess it's fair to say initially was probably fairly geared towards aesthetics. I think he reflects it on being an environment full of celebrities and models mm-hmm. um, and then looking at changing the attitudes and the perspectives on what proper physical preparation actually means. Mm, and 98 was started by Russell Crowe. Mm. Um, We might need to take his passport back off him because he'll talk about how he's trained some All Blacks uh, to being highly successful athletes in their own right. Yeah, and also along the way sort of uh, reflects on what uh, the the importance of mindset in all of these kind of preparation um, aspects uh, for for all of those kind of outputs that we spoke about. We hope you enjoy this chat with Kev Toonan and let's get on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Unforgiving 60. I'm Ben Tonk and I'm joined by my... Tim Curtis. Sidekick, 
G'day, I'm Tim Curtis. Tim Curtis. Hi, Ben. I'm Tim Curtis. Robin to my Batman. <laughs> Hutch sure. to my Starsky. And we're joined by a good friend of ours. I was going to say an old friend, but not looking so old. Kev. Kev Turnin, how are you? Good, thanks, guys. Great to be on here. Um, yeah, yeah. Good friend, old friend. We'll go with both. Yeah, <laughs> both, bit, both are probably true. A bit old and crusty at the moment. We've been trying to line this up for, I reckon, about 12 months and keep missing each other. And I think a large part of that is due to how important and famous you are, Kev. You're a, you're a hard man to pin down. What's Where are you at the moment? I was going to blame... Uh, one of the state premiers, but um, <laughs> I um, I'm at, at the moment I'm in Mullumbimby, so I'm, uh, I'm with uh, with the Roosters on a training camp here. So we're uh, a couple of weeks out from the start of the season. So um, Trent likes to likes to come here, and we do something completely different with the team when we're on this camp. Like a lot, ninety percent of it's football, um, and then the other ten percent of that is. Um, experiencing something completely different that they would never have done before. So um, last night we did a sweat lodge, um, literally in, in a teepee, um, shirts off in shorts with, uh, I think we had 40 guys and girls crammed into this uh, little thing. Sounds like Tim's um, average weekend. I saw that on Billions, <laughs> except they had psychedelics rotating around the sweat lodge. I looked for them. Um, there were some odd-looking plants kicking around this guy's place, but... Um, <laughs> None of which, uh, you know, I'm familiar with. <laughs> and, and the Roosters, obviously, the Sydney Roosters, New South Wales rugby league side, for those that might not be familiar with the Sydney Roosters. And we're super keen to talk um, Roosters and your, your current role with them, basically including the, the physical but also the, the psychological and mental. But to set the scene, can you provide a bit of background on yourself in terms of your early years and, and what led you to your current role? Yeah, sure. So um, I... Uh, I was like like I was never great at school. Um, I don't think the way they teach at school was uh, how it was very. Uh, it didn't match my learning styles, so uh, I didn't struggle through school. I just didn't enjoy it, and I didn't understand a lot of it. Um, so I, I fell ass backwards into university, despite every you know every chance I had to to do worse at school. And then um, within the first couple of months, I I, I wasn't enjoying it at all. Um, I happened to walk past a recruiting uh, place in uh, in Brisbane, in the, in the Brisbane city. There, they had uh, they actually had a TV, a TV with a back on it too. You know those old TVs that went you know went further back than they did up. Um, there was uh, I think it was that one where the tank was going over the hill and it was getting some mm. air. There was guys coming in helicopters and they were, they were whistling in the in the long tall grass. Yep, so yep. I walked in there. Um, he sold lots of really good stuff to me, none of which come true. But um, <laughs> I believe, I believe it was all about rugby union at that point. I was, I was mad keen into rugby union. He was like, "Oh, you'll love this. You know, the army's great. You'll play a lot of rugby union. You'll get to the army rugby football team, and you know, we 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 take those guys out of bush exercises and helicopters, and it's easy." I played one game in my entire. Uh, time I was in the army, by the way. Mind you, for, for people who have played Australian Services Rugby Union, ASRU, mm. that description is actually super accurate. They do spend <laughs> more time playing footy. They do get pulled out of field ex in, in my, my limited experience. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I, yeah. I was. It was probably down to the fact that I wasn't a very good player either. That's probably why I never got looking. <laughs> so don't go blaming the army, Kev. But no, <laughs> your, no. Your I think it was, it was the recruiting. It was recruiting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, uh, so, uh, and I thought I'd sort of jump in for, for four years. I thought that would be enough. And um, I also thought I'd make some money and, and, and move on. Um, anyone out there that's going to join the army, it's just make sure it's not for financial gain uh, within the first four years. I think my wage going into Singer was about 19 and a half grand. Uh, Gee, I, I reckon you would have been overpaid for what you were, you're giving back to the country. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, here's a point of contrast. Mine was 12 grand. I was certainly overpaid. <laughs> the Commonwealth did not get their value out of that. <laughs> we're still dollar drinks back then too, the cry. So I joined the infantry um, and uh, from there I went to 3RER. Um, and that was purely because when I looked at my wage slip one day, I realised that the fact that I, I may not be able to live as extravagantly as I thought. So someone had told me in Singo that yeah, if we went to three, we got an extra, I think, two or three grand a year, an extra $25 per jump, and that, and that sold me. Um, so 3RAR used to be our parachute battalion, so static line parachuting, and, and obviously you, you get paid a bit more to jump out of a, a perfectly... And there's a lot of romance and beauty in, you know, parachute battalion jumps, isn't there, Kev? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because it was, a, you know, it was the better battalion out of all of them. Um, it's just the way it was. Um, no, like, it, it was interesting. I, I didn't, like, you don't realise until you're there just how much infighting there is, you know, in every unit, and then it just trickles down from there. But, um yeah, it's uh, and it's that's the romance stops at the posters and the description, and then the army has that way of making, you know, uh, parachuting just horrendous. In fact, ev everything you know, people say to you, "Oh, you're in the army, and you know, you get to go camping or parachute. Oh, I'd love to go skydiving or <laughs> diving, kayaking." I mean, I, I remember being on a dive course and a civvy friend saying, "Oh, that's so cool! I did one on the Great Barrier Reef." <laughs> Basically, we just sort of rolled into the water and then finned as hard as we could for about thirty minutes, just till you spewed up in your regulator. I mean, we weren't looking at fish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, look, I, 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 I thoroughly enjoyed it, though. Like, I really enjoyed the, the physicality of it all. I really enjoyed um, uh, I enjoyed the way they taught. Like, I've never been taught that, like, that EDP, which I think is mm. as silly as it sounds. It covers the three ways that we learn, you know, explain, demonstrate, practice. Um, I flourished, and then I realised that I just tied whatever I was learning um, I tied it back to something I wanted to do, which as simple as that sounds, it was never explained to me through school, through the entire time. It was, you know, it was just blackboard with chalk. That's, that's how old I am. Um, and that's the way they taught it. In the army, it was, you know, uh, it was driven by a little bit of fear, which was nice. But, um, it, you know, everything was done in this process and you could guarantee that if you missed the first lesson, you know, you're going to get revision in the second one and, and back and forth. So, I, I enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed the the mateship um, and the and the unit. The, the the battalion mentality was 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 fun for the first few years as well. Um, so uh, and, and then ninety uh, nine come around for East Timor. Um, you know the, the biggest war there was at that yep. time. Um, I mean, we say that joking, but and I think we've spoken about this with with other guests, but. The context was there had been nothing for for thirty odd years since the end of Vietnam, and I guess with the benefit of hindsight now, post Afghanistan and Iraq, it it doesn't seem as big a conflict, but it was pretty significant, I think, in the Australian Defence Forces history, and certainly for those of us serving at the time. And don't diminish strategic importance mm. too; it was incredibly strategically important. 
Yeah, look, look uh, yeah, I, I think at the time in context, it definitely was the biggest thing we, you know, we ever did. And I think the way we got there, and I think it, it propelled the Defence Force, you know, five, ten years in the future because of the fact that we realised as we were running along, you know, we had a lot of deficiencies. Um, I still remember learning how to use the Ninox um, back then, that, that one monocle, that handy one monocle that uh, you jammed underneath your helmet. Um, so the helmet used to fit like a skull cap and then the helmet on, you know, and then you wear the little monocle attachment underneath and have that forever headache and that imprint of that. So that the, the Ninox for our audience was the early generation uh, night fighting equipment, night vision goggle. And as, as Kev mentioned, super ergonomically um, inefficient uh, and also spectacularly bad for depth perception because it was a monocle um, you, you didn't get that stereoscopic vision and so you'd find yourself tripping over all sorts of things. Well, yeah, Good well, we, fun. we used to drive in them, remember? You know, it's a tactical <laughs> driving with no depth perception. <laughs> not, not a good thing. <laughs> um, yeah, look, yeah, I thought the team was great and it was also really interesting from a, a you know, I, I went to private school. Um, I grew up in, a, in like a, you know, a lovely family. Uh, we were, you know, very well off, never struggled for anything and then I, I you know, put myself in the, in the battalion uh, which I was exposed to, you know, <laughs> just animals on, on both sides of the spectrum, which was great. Um, and then and then going to a country like Timor, just, just being dirt poor, ravaged by, you know, uh, the militia and everything else that went through, um, it, it gave me a, like a, a culture shock like I wouldn't believe. You know, I remember getting off the boat back then because um, we went over in that uh, that That boat. trimaran, um, catamaran thing, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and stepping off and the smell, yeah, you know, you don't, you don't forget that, uh, that, uh, Southeast Asian smell. And then it was, uh, people just jam packed on the wharf. There was, uh, wedding photos on the ground. I can still remember those, like someone's wedding photos have just been left scattered on the ground. And, um, and the briefs we were getting leading up then too, like, you know, Hey, on the way over there, we're being tracked by a submarine or something. And there was like, and obviously the, the filter of information as a pri- private, you know, it may have been, hey, someone saw an eagle on the, you know, on the bow and then it trickled down to us like, yeah, there's a nuclear submarine. Uh, it's, it's definitely Indonesian. They're going to bomb us. You know, like that's, that's, that's usually how that furfy machine came down through the chain. Um, interesting enough, we started a furf uh, in Timor just due to some of the boredom and it reached all the way around up to the top and came back down. Um, that was, uh, that was interesting. <laughs> I won't tell you which one, what firth it was, but, um, yeah, look, uh, that was back to back for me. So I, I did, uh, did the 99 and that we come back in 2000. And then when I came back from that, um, I do tell people now, like, I guess I would, have. I don't think I had any post-traumatic stress from that because there was, there was a, you know, mass graves. There was a few other things that we saw there, which we probably weren't equipped to talk about, which, um, but I was lucky to have to real, have real senior NCOs real good NCOs at the time, actually, who, who gave me some sort of structure and context around seeing all that. But I still think I was, uh, I had, uh, maybe hadn't processed it the way I should. Um, and we, were, we went straight back. I got malaria, actually, after that trip. Mm. Um, spent most of my leave in hospital. Um, was allowed out for my 21st. Um, and then I, I had uh, had a spleen full of blood and they just told me, hey, there's no contact uh, for you, like physical contact, anything for the next 12 months. And then as soon as I got back to the unit, they were like, oh, we've got continuation training. 
And I said to the, my sergeant at the time, I was like, oh, apparently I'm, I can't fall on this or something. He's like, that's all right. Just when you hit the ground, just roll to the left and to the right. That was, that was it. So, just um, just absorb the force anyone... with, with your other spleen. <laughs> that's it. It's just 10, 6, 3, you've landed. I think that's um, – <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. And then as you know, like a round shoot, you really got a lot of opportunity to steer that thing. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so uh, we got back into training. Uh, um, Actually, Kev, be, before we leave the first rotation and your experiences from the 99 tour, the most important question, did you make it to the, the Kylie Minogue concert, to the Tour de Force? No, uh, you know what? I missed every single one of them. Um, well, Charlie Company, which I was in, went from, uh, we went Dilly, Maliana, uh, we messed around Maliana for a while, and then we, we were in the Enclave mm. in Akusi. So. Yeah, we ended up missing everything. Um, uh, like, I was really upset about more, you know, the Angels. I would have mm. really liked to see the Angels. That was, you know, Kylie, mm, you know. It, it must um, have been and me and you sort of single-handedly holding the border closed <laughs> while while the rest of the, the task force was at the, the concert because <laughs> I missed them as well. I enjoyed that trip the most too because there was, there was freedom of beer and alcohol um, on that one. Yeah, well. yeah, it was, of, it was pretty loose in those early days, as, as I recall. Yeah, there was lots of cans of VB, and, and I do remember wagon wheels for some reason. Um, we got like a shipment of wagon wheels over. <laughs> um, so, lots of pointless shit. You, you were saying you, you sort of built up for, for uh, redeploying. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's, so there was a, a trip going with one RER. Um, and you know what it's like volunteering for stuff in the army. Like you don't, you don't do it. Um, so I, the first time I volunteered for something, someone said like, hey, who's the best swimmer here? Um, we've got a dive course on. So I went, yes. And I ended up washing cars for a week. Um, <laughs> so I, I ceased volunteering after that one. Um but we were standing around and they're like a support company as you do gathering time in the breezeway and uh, the OC come out and said like, I need 12 guys to go to East Timor in a week's time with one RAR. And I was like, this is bullshit. Like, you know, we're probably going to go out in the back and, you know, just dig a hole for a week. But I was like, yep, I'll go. And he's like, okay, sweet. Anyone else? So a bunch of other guys put their hand up and it was, it was real. So we went mm. in there, we got a, a week's leave and we uh, went to Darwin to do three days of pre-deployment went straight to Townsville. I met up with my uh, uh, company at the time, my platoon commander, section commander, and then a week later, we were back in East Timor. So I spent uh, another, it was almost seven months with one hour with Charlie Company, um, which uh, that, again, that was another big steep learning curve. I was lucky enough to, um, Mick Dalton was the guy's name and uh, one of the best section commanders I've ever had. Uh, he was a, a recon uh, section commander or patrol commander. Taught me a lot of stuff. Like we went really deep into soldiering, which I really enjoyed. And um, uh, I almost, almost uh, transferred over to one RA after that trip. Um, but I was starkly reminded um, by how boring Townsville was. So I ended up coming back to Sydney anyway. <laughs> and um, g'day to all our Townsville listeners. <laughs> <laughs> And if they know, they're sitting there, they understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I came back um, and uh, and then I think 3R uh, deployed again in 2003 to East Timor. So I was, I was sort of racking up the, the Timor frequent fly points there for a bit. 
Um, got myself on a couple of support courses in between. Um, and yeah, I think from there, oh, I got out for 12 months. Um, after that, so after my four years, um, I took um, I took 12 months off just to start. I, I thought it was going to be a lot better on the outside. I went to Noosa. Um, I did some work in Brisbane. And I think at about the nine-month mark, I rang the unit up and I rang the uh, the RSM, who was my CSM back in Timor. Mm-hmm. And I just said, oh, this is probably not for me at this point. Can I come back? And he said, yeah, yeah, no worries. I'll, you know, do you, how long do you need? And I was like, oh, you know two weeks and he's like all right we'll, we'll see you back here in a couple of weeks um which was interesting because uh i, I thought you know i thought once i left the army you know everything would go great but i just i missed a whole bunch of things i missed the physicality of the work i missed the purpose of the work i really missed uh serving something bigger than myself uh and that's one thing i've always taken away from that time uh when i left is that like it's if, if i don't have a real purpose something that wakes me up in the morning drives me then um, I'll, I'm a very sad human um, without that. Hmm. You know, um, I, I missed. I assumed as well that everyone else on the outside had the same sort of values and morals as the boys did inside as well. Which, which is another thing that um, still to this day I think you know, like that's probably the hardest thing about ever transitioning is is that tribe. And you guys talk about it in your book um, and that you know that resilience shield. I think that's a, that's a big thing. That's that's probably the hardest thing I've ever like that is trying to find that on the outside that's mm. hard mm. um so yeah like i, I got back in uh, i spent time with uh, uh, recon snipers uh, i really enjoyed that i liked working with one other person um <laughs> uh, yeah um but the, the sniper course itself it took uh that was it was you know that, that to, to, up until that time that was the hardest thing i'd ever done mm. you know uh, um, it was, and it was also one of the only courses in the army you could actually fail, uh, and they would, you know, you'd have one retest, and then you were like gone. Yeah, um, very tough course. Yeah, but and it taught you so much. Like I on on the on the selection part, it was a week of selection before you got onto the course. I actually walked myself off the map um, in the, the day nav, and it was just embarrassment that that's, that got me to figure out where I was. I actually found power lines on the map. I found power lines up in area E and just thought, oh, I'll just follow these until I run myself back into the next checkpoint. And But that was, yeah. We're going to talk about Mon Georgieva and, and your sort of um, training relationship with her um, Which might have included a bit navigation. later on, but <laughs> clearly you were, you're helping her with her nav as well. <laughs> Do you remember that time when you could see her GPS just doing circles in that one spot? <laughs> that, that's a Kev Turnin special, is it? <laughs> oh yeah I, it was it was uh but I, I never made that mistake ever again and that that one day taught me more about navigation than any other thing i ever did because i have to solve the problem for myself and it was the fear of like mm-hmm. these guys going this bike's a complete fool like um so i ended up making onto the course made through the course spent time in the cell it was, it was really really good it was excellent i had a lot of a lot of fun in there um and then we uh I think it was 2006 or seven. We uh, we went to Afghanistan. Um, that was yeah, uh, that was a good trip. Really, really good trip. Um, yeah, I think again, you know, you keep, we keep stepping it up in terms of training, and, and as the years rolled on, especially at three, 
um, you know, the way we trained um, and things started to trickle down. I, I don't think anything of it started, was really trickling down from uh, SASR at that point, not at the, you know, at the rate it was, it is now and, and how different it is. Like, the, it's really hard to draw any comparisons between what we were doing in training back then to how the boys in the infantry uh, and the girls in the infantry now uh, get to train, you know. Mm. You watch them, their drills, their, the way mm. they, their gear is mm. put together. It's it's excellent, and and a lot of that comes from you know like Mortz and Weeksy and uh, Dono, all the boys putting that time in. Um, but yeah, that, that wasn't the case for us. It was reading books and and you know handed down stories and the myth of SASR. When I come back from there, I'd actually, um, uh, I actually got married, um, first one. Um, <laughs> and yeah, there was just the, there was a point there where like, we were both in the army and, um, it was, uh, it was going to have to be like a, a different, one of us had to make a choice about like, or not really make a choice, but like decide, you know, we're going to have to spend more time at home together. So I decided to, um, to go and become a PDI. Um, I'd done the course at some point throughout my years, uh, enjoyed that again. Like that was, that was a lot of fun. Um, so I ended up going to, to service for six months. Um, from there, I got posted to ADFA, um, which was, you know, again, that, that, that was a lot of fun. Kev, we've just spoken with a guy called Dean Fechner, who was an Air Force PTI who did a stint in, in ADFA. Dean spoke about the, um, the, the sort of PTI course. Did, was it was it pretty tough? Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it it wasn't like it's not it's, you know I, I I can't speak for it now but like I like you know no it wasn't tough um, and I'm sure and I have no visual on it whatsoever what it is now but like from what I can tell it's a lot better um, but it was still it was very very basic. You know, it's, it was very, very basic. And um, there was two guys from two commando on my course as well. Um, and just just talk, and it was, and another guy from, um, from Darwin, I think from 5-7. But we were, when we got in the course, we realised that like, oh, this is, this is not hard. This is not tough. The physicality part of it, like we've done in the, in the unit, in the battalion a million times over. It was literally just how to take a, a, a properly run session mm-hmm. and then learning a very small amount about physiology and and, and i mean a very small amount um a lot of the information was backdated and this is i think about the time when everyone started to get a little bit more uh aware of like hey you can google things and then mm. it was there seemed to be this transition in the army where you could start to ask questions and have a bit more of a voice you know previous to this it was fairly cut and dry with you know like if you were a corporal and that guy was a sergeant, then he was always right. That was just the way it was going to be. Um, and it, this sort of started to happen, you know, uh, around that time. And 
uh, yeah, I, I can I can remember being not not disappointed, but just like, oh, okay, well, you know, this is going to be a fairly flexy type of job then. And um, but from there, I, I it always started like I'd done a little bit of study myself. Um, I started to learn a little bit more, and um, you know. Uh, I run up, you know, I think I always will run up against opposition because I, I, I just didn't like the status quo from that time on. Mm. Like I just thought we weren't moving fast enough in the right direction. And I don't think we were serving anyone properly. You know, we were just this arm of the defence force that really provided no benefit whatsoever other than like some extensive red shorts for no reason. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, um, it's funny you say that and, and I'm really keen to explore how your views on on physical preparedness have changed over that time. But I, I do remember there being this transition period where, in many cases, people in units probably knew more about physical prep than a lot of the PTIs who hadn't sort of got that, that background. And I, I distinctly remember in the ad for gym at one stage, I was visiting there as, a, as an officer and uh, dropping a, um, an Olympic barbell overhead. I'd just done some massive, enormous 45-kilo clean and jerk some, something that obviously I couldn't just lower, but I, I dropped this this Olympic um, these Olympic plates overhead, and and the Navy PDI came screaming in, "Don't do that! That's not what they're designed for." And I sort of said to him, "I wasn't trying to be a smartass, but I said that's exactly what they're designed <laughs> they're designed for." And yeah, I think that represents that the the at that stage the PTI training hadn't caught up with the, the more modern protocols. No, and, and they didn't like anyone putting their head in there or, or suggesting anything like if you, and it was, you know, I think that was the defense horse at that point. If that wasn't your lane, you, you, you obviously had no business going anywhere near it, you know, mm. like, um, and we just, uh, yeah. And, and there's something about, you know, in order to be, uh, I think a voice in that area, you, you, you have to have trained and know more, felt the pain that you're pushing everyone else through. That was a big thing for me was like, I'll never expect, you know, I didn't want to just do stuff for the sake of doing stuff. I wanted to know why I wanted to know how, and can we do this better? Can we do this faster? And is this the best, you know, is this best practice? Um, and then you've got guys and, uh, and girls who have been in a particular job for a long period of time. And then have, uh, you know, they punched their ticket in, in a certain point and then re- like they were just existing there and, and drawing a wage, which is, you know, something that uh, happens in all organizations um so i do remember like i ran into um i think uh mark wales was there at the time um that was one of the, that's the still physically i think the biggest head i've ever seen <laughs> um you know <laughs> i'm glad he was a big unit too because the head was still huge um that's how he does so a, well on survivor he just stores food in his <laughs> cud some somehow <laughs> He's, I mean, the rest of him is not small either. He's, he's no, got a few days on the man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, and then there was a, a, another officer there um, as well. I can't remember his name, um, but he he was uh, yeah he was from one of the squadrons, and um, he ended up um, coming uh, coming into the gym one day and asking like, "Hey, I've signed up for this adventure race, um, and I've got one other." And the, the other guy was. Um, uh, a helicopter pilot and um, Junior Murray um, and Junior was um, you know he was one of my be- good mates there at the time and he was like oh we should go and do this this, this race and I was like yeah it's great so we ended up getting bikes um, we borrowed bikes from mates and had no shocks either side 
And we come down the, the, the downhill track that they race on or practice the AIS. And we were like, you know, it was, it was one of the dumbest things we've ever done. You know, like I still think uh, I've got jarring of the spine to this day, but um, <laughs> we were coming off on the bike. I'd never ridden that fast downhill ever. And I don't think I'd ever ridden fast downhill, you know, at all. And yeah, we, like it was one of the, one of the, like it was a great day. And, and we ended up, um, I think we ended up second or third or something. And, um, but yeah, um, it was like one of the first times I'd actually seen someone from the unit. And I just remember this guy not being, he didn't physically look impressive because uh, my, 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 I guess my, the picture I had at the time was Walesy. And I remember you, uh, Bronky, coming in to the gym. So I had this like, you know. Surely that was uh, not forming your picture of the stereotypical. Oh, <laughs> well, you, you looked lean. You know, looked well, lean as, he's, lean. as he's already yeah. explained, Kev, he, he was ahead of the PTIs. He was on the leading edge of strength and conditioning. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he, he used to drop he the barbell. So 100%, yeah. Was I coming into the, the gym to give PTIs some tips on, on <laughs> just, physical training? Just gather around. Just gather around. <laughs> Bit closer. Yeah. I was always impressed with his hair, to be honest. I feel like that's a head of hair. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and so like I hadn't really seen this before. And then uh, he he wasn't physically impressive, but he just I'd never seen work ethic like it. Yeah, mm. you know, he was just a he was absolute unit. Um, and then for the rest of the time, I guess Junior and I um, we, just, we were just training together and having and like we ended up just doing a lot of training. And he kept saying like, "Hey, if you if you really want to make a difference anywhere, you've got to try and get yourself to Perth." That's, that's what I wanted to go. And again, like it was very hard that trying to get a posting to SASR wasn't based on merit. It wasn't based on who was the best or who was best suited. It was based on like a scheme of thought. This guy was good for here, you know. Mm. Um, so there was a posting that came up to go to Karakata, which I thought like, okay, I'll take that. Um, because that, at least that puts me in WA. It gets me closer to the unit, and that means I can get like yeah closer again to you guys, and just basically just bully my way in, which is I think what I did. Um, you know, I got um, uh, Eddie was uh, the PDI mm-hmm. there at the time, and I just basically harassed him until he uh, let me come onto one of the selections, and then um, uh, and then I think I ended up uh, becoming friends with and I did our sub one for sergeant together. Um, you know, mm. and yeah, he hates to hates to put his his ideas forward. Um, <laughs> <a little> shrinking <laughs> violet. That's <laughs> right. Uh, the upsetting thing is most of the time when he speaks, it's it's correct. Mm. Um, mm. It's just the way he puts it across, um, which is yeah. But yeah, and then I th- then it was a, a posting to SASR, and um, and then uh, and I still this day like uh, I, I I came in contact with uh, Danny Cooper. Um, you know, and who's like somehow adapted uh, smiling and emotion to his face post uh, <laughs> yeah. post army life. Um, uh, yeah, he was he was awesome. Like what I learned from Danny in those couple of years, and, and Harry as well, and Moth, um, and just the opportunities afforded to me because I was there. Like you know, there was there was again not a, a, a money shortage. 
Uh, and the way I explain it, I guess, is there's no handbrakes uh, in the unit. There's not a, there's no one telling you no all the time, which is what my experience was in, in wider army was no until someone else thought of the idea and then they'd say yes. Um, going to the unit was just like, that sounds like a good idea. Let's go. Like, yep, sure. Let's let's put money there. And, and look, for our listeners, Kev's probably probably going to be too humble to, to sort of mention this himself, but um, the period that Kev was there did see, um, from an operator's perspective, a massive transformation in the way that we were training people from a physical side of things. It, it to me, was that real tipping point between the old school sort of run 10Ks and, and do a bunch of bench presses to much more functional fitness, to much more focus on core strength, which... As we were transitioning into operations in Afghanistan, a lot more body armour work, we were starting to find that we needed that kind of fitness, that, that the old school wasn't working. And, um, you know, the, the way the gym looks now compared to the way the gym used to look and the way people train, a lot of that, I think, has got your fingerprints all over it, Kev. Yeah, I think so. Like, it's it's very easy to, to succeed when you're surrounded by people that allow you to do that. And that, that's it. But your organisation... Is you know, is built to to do that? Like it's a funnel for for success. Like it's um, you know, if you have an idea, it's accepted and off it goes. Um, and what I learned there was was basically how to sell the right training to a bunch of guys that you know weren't keen on doing legs because we wore you know we, we all wore pants every single day, so there was no need to see your legs. Um, I still remember when Danny and I decided to do some testing, and we had like. You know, we had the results in front of us. I think the average body weight was like 88 kilos. The average bench press was 130, and the average back squat was 90. Um, <laughs> yeah. And we were, you know, we we're looking at it going, well, this is great if everyone decides to walk on their hands for the next 12 months. But, um, you know, and it was, it was a period of like, um, you know, every single day when Danny did speak and, and, and communicate with the rest of the world, um, he, uh, it, was, it was just so logical about the whole thing and he was unemotional about what I really like and I like this the most was him and Moff were very unemotional about the, the beret, the hat, all those sort of things and not just like what is good now but what's going to be great in the future. Like let's look forward five or ten years and they and they, they really push forward in uncomfortable areas I think as well uh, about how to get human performance to where it, where it could be and where it should Kev, interested, you know, in your foray from the regular army across to the west into the gym at the SAS regiment, what was your initial impression of the physical uh, preparation and the commitment to training across the guys and girls of the SAS regiment? I think my assumption coming in that it would be exactly that, the way it was. Like everyone knew that it was part of their job and they must stay fit and strong and healthy. Um, I wasn't aware of just how, uh, you know, like, you know, I guess, before we, we left Afghanistan or we sort of drew down, um, everyone was hiding some sort of injury, you know, knees, ankles, shoulders, wrists, something, backs. Um, so the extent of everyone's injuries and I guess the, the toll, uh, you know, of that, that whole uh, campaign, what it, mm-hmm. what it was doing physically to the body was, was the, probably the most interesting thing, you know, um, because it was. And, and then also getting a real, uh, a real idea of like just how much the job you know, nine to five when you do it, like when you're wearing body armor every day, when you, when you, you know, you're, you're trying to upskill in areas, just how much like physical degradation that, that, that puts on the human body. Um, but I was just impressed with work ethic and, as I, as, and I wasn't, I wasn't surprised at that. That was, that was sort of what I, what I thought, but um, you know, like 
I always I tell this to, to most people. I say, like, you know, in the sporting world and the athlete world, I'm constantly having to tell some guys, like, please do more, please do more, please look after yourself, please do this. Where at SASR, I was like, you probably shouldn't come in today. You should probably go home and sleep. You should probably like mm-hmm. relax. So it was trying to get these guys to learn how to recover and downregulate um, as opposed to continually upregulate, you know, and that's, um, uh, but that's, you know, that's an emotional attachment because, you know, that, though I guess I'm fearful of like, what if I'm not at my best? And that's because, you know, that's the guys you want. Like they constantly want to make sure that they're not the weakest link. And that's, you can't, uh, you know, you didn't, you didn't want to stifle that, um, but it was just coming up with smart ways that how do I get these guys, um, how do I tell them what they want to hear and then give them what they need? You know, like that's, that was the sort of sell. It's interesting. We've been, you know, doing a, a little bit of reading. Dr. Ali Crum, who's out of Stanford as a mindset expert, and people use mindset as, as if it's really um, positive, and, and certainly it is. She says there's a negative component to mindset that mindset can drive you into overtraining, to stress fractures, to, you know, debilitating um, your physical prowess. I mean, it's interesting that you're saying that at times those people with, you know, really strong mindsets have to be forced to throttle back. Otherwise, yeah, they kind of compromise their, their physiology. I think, too, the unit was great for, first off, you know, um, if we stopped demonising psychologists. I, you know, I remember, like, you know, those poor guys and girls that used to work there that, you know, at the start, if you walk past them, you, you know, you'd sort of block your ears and close your eyes in case they could read your mind as you walk by. <laughs> Um, so when I left, you know, we, we saw them as a, as a value add to the unit like, and, and to your performance. Um, and the unit was very good at, at physiotherapy as well. It was, you know, like, this is how we get you back out operating straight away. And this is, we're not going to try and stop you. It's just a safe place to come in, tell mm-hmm. us what's wrong. I can, I can bandage this for so long. You know, the doctors, the medical staff, they were, they, you know, they were second to none. I thought they were, that's, that's what I took away from that area the most was like, you know, you go back to a unit and people were scared to go to the doctor. scared to go to the medics. Um, scared you know, to go to the psych getting, and on the mental health side of things as well. Huge, yeah, you know. Um, and, yeah, guys, uh, yeah, I, I think, and we just push through that as well. And I think Moff and Coops, uh, you know, and, and, and yourself, Ben, especially, like allowing us the freedom to, to try and push these areas. Um not that you and Buzz, the way you're training sometimes actually helps, but um, <laughs> still don't know how Buzz actually trained. Like I said, there's more operations on that man than... than uh... Oh, he's still got the, the chest and biceps in. The beach muscles were, were always <laughs> See, looking good. good. And calves like chickens uh, in steps. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we hope you've enjoyed this first episode in our special two-part chat with Kev Toonan. In the next episode, we're going to finish up chatting with Kev about his time within the Special Air Service Regiment and explore what he got up to after he left the military and started training interesting folk ranging from celebrities, models, all the way through to elite professional sports people. Looking forward to seeing you then.
Summer tree, yes. She don't mind so much. I- 